The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy trends, innovations, and debates. Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio 1500 AM. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Jason Miller. Jason is the executive editor for Federal News Radio and the man who covers the federal procurement marketplace. Jason, hey, welcome to the show. Thank you, Roger. This is like a return engagement of sorts, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was you, you, your last, uh, well, your first. My first and, <laughs> and last not one. last. Not and last. not last, apparently. Um, the appearance on the show went over so well that I had to have you come back. We may make this a quarterly thing, like we just talked, or at least biannually, perhaps. I don't know. So this is maybe your last one for 2018. I don't know. That, that's fine. <laughs> it's, it's good. You know, there's so much to talk about. There's so much going on. So it's great to hear your opinions. And uh, once in a while, I can give an opinion that uh, based on my coverage and what, who, what I'm hearing. So uh, let's get started. Absolutely. Well, uh, right now we're into, we're getting close to halfway through the administration, let's say. Um, the federal procurement uh, world has been changing. And let's just talk about the state of federal acquisition right now. What are you seeing out there? The biggest thing that stands out to me has to be the fact is that 18 months into the Trump administration, and there is no administrator in the Office of Federal Procurement Policy. This, to me, is just flabbergast. I cannot believe that here we are 18 months in, and there's not even a name that's floating, not even a nominee. If you think about the OMB controller, right, this is the old right. Dave Mader position, Danny Werfel position, that has at least a nominee, Fred Nutt. And Congress just hasn't acted yet, not the administration's fault. But there's not even a, a, a sniffle of a person who can fill in for OFPP. And this is not anything against Leslie Field and Matthew Blum and some others who work there, Joni Newhart. They're all incredible people. But there is a big difference between having somebody in a presidentially appointed Senate-confirmed role and a career person who's acting. And I just don't get it. Like, we've heard some names that were bandied about, but nothing ever came from them. Yeah, that's... I guess an interesting development at a time when there's a lot going on and perhaps that's it seems to me one of the you know the ways the 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 void is being filled is through structure like category management and just trying to implement that but also at GSA I mean GSA there's a lot going on there that you know they're be, been given more and more responsibility they're one of the lead agencies for category management you know, they've got Section 846 statutory things. They've got the IT Modernization Fund. There seems to be more being given to, you know, the reorg. We'll talk about all these things as we go through. You know, and GSA is getting a piece of OPM. The You know, perhaps that's to try to fill that vacuum. I would argue, though, GSA's always acted in that role. They've always been the operational arm of OMB. And now maybe people may not appreciate that too much, but I think it's a testament to, it's the, true. to the good yeah. people at GSA and how much work they do accomplish and how good they do it. Uh, and I don't think it's filling the void. I think that's a natural progression. Uh, when OMB says, let's do something, they look around and go, okay, who can do it? Make Give to GSA, Federal Acquisition Service, OGP, as, as two examples of, of people who really do a good job of fulfilling the, any administration's needs. I don't have a clue of why OFPP administrators still vacant. I don't know if it's the administration thinks it's not a very important position. I don't know if they can find somebody who will say yes, who's qualified. Uh, there was a name bandied about who's a gentleman who worked at the Congressional Research Service for a while, but I've not heard anything about his name since we probably pushing six or nine months. I've asked a few people in the community, hey, who are you hearing? And nobody's, nobody's heard anything. 
You know, I, I agree with you. Tend to that GSA tends to get these responsibilities, but there just seems to me a bit more. You know, GSA's frankly recovered from where it was back. Uh, you know, in the days of Las Vegas. But to your point about why, I think part of it is it's not one of the high priority positions. It's not a cabinet level position, right? It's a down a couple levels. It's procurement. There aren't a lot of folks out there, frankly, that are procurement professionals and also political in that sense. Um, so it doesn't become a high priority. And as long as things are operating, you know, I don't know. I'm just speculating the appreciation of the procurement, the way, the role procurement plays in government operations sometimes is, hey, as long as it's not creating real significant problems, um, let's just go with where we are. I would argue the opposite of that, though. I yeah. think that every administration downplays the importance of OFPP. I mean, I think the Obama administration did, the Bush administration so we're did. We're just going to agree to disagree today, right? No, Isn't... no, just on this one. <laughs> I, 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 my take on this is it's a lack of understanding of the importance of in government. I mean, the government just spends, what do they spend, Roger? $480 billion a year on procurement or something like that. It's not that important. I mean, if it's if the train's running, the train's running. I mean, it doesn't really matter if there's a conductor, <laughs> right? I mean, they didn't say that for, for the federal CIO. They haven't said that for... Uh, they just named a federal chief information security officer after 18 months, and it's the person who's been in that role. Uh, I don't know if they've offered to Leslie and she doesn't want it. I, I don't know if they've offered to Matthew and he doesn't want it or, or what. Well, there's also maybe something else going on here too. And again, these just... When you think about it, the the philosophical approach of this administration with regulatory freeze, with the two for one, with reducing burdens, often a, a huge part of the OFPP role is is about policy and implementation of policy. And perhaps since you know there are, there isn't a lot of going on in that area, maybe you know because it is a bully pulpit. It doesn't actually you know they don't spend money. They're statutorily prohibited from being directly involved in any procurements for good reason. So perhaps it's there's not a lot going on on there, and people are spending money over in their agencies. Speaking of questions you brought up earlier, uh, how many final rules last year in 2017 around procurement uh, were, were finalized? Do you remember? Maybe two? I think one. One? I think really? one. This year is not much better. We checked. Uh, okay. My colleague yeah. Jared Serbu uh, checked, and I think he said there were five this year. Most of them were proposed rules mm-hmm. versus final rules. You're right. There has been no action. I think that's a big problem, too given the fact of how busy the NDA has been over the last few years and how much, quote-unquote, reform they've been trying to push out. Uh, I mean, if you think about, let's, you know, take, you talk about the state of acquisition, there's so many changes that are happening around acquisition. I'm, I'm a little surprised there's not been a policy around other transaction authority yet. I'm a little surprised there hasn't been a policy around the e-commerce stuff. I'm, you know, coming from OFPP, directing agencies to move in a specific direction. Uh, you, you brought up, uh, I think, before we started the conversation, uh, the increase in the simplified acquisition threshold, the micro-purchase threshold, policy around that just came out, I think, and it was signed by, I think, a Deputy Director for Management or, or, or Margaret Whitekirk or even Mick Mulvaney, and that's all OFPP normally. So may- maybe your point is fair that that's why they, they don't see a need. And some of that is, I, for, I was trying to figure out when, like, the Order 11 materials were, I guess it was very the beginning of this year, so they do, yeah. Um Part of that too is what's going on on the NDAA side, and the you know things not putting in place. Is you're you're absolutely correct. There's just a, you know it's stacking one on top of other different things that uh, Congress has passed that there have to be implemented, and um, you know AT and L splitting in two, DPAP. It's uh, you know DPAP is really being reduced down to the policy 
uh, operations piece and the regulations piece, and it's going to take them a while to get to even begin to address a lot of these things. You know, we've had a three-year cycle here of lots and lots of acquisition reform, but it's like there's a dam built up to be able to process those and get them out to the folks. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. I think that's a that's a great point that until D- and DOD hasn't gotten moving on a lot of these things. I, I was just talking to someone just recently as well, and they brought up the fact that DOD was, was supposed to was something in 2016 NDA, and they still haven't published the, the proposed sure. rule yet. Yeah, yeah. And this is 2018. Right. And where is the oversight by Congress? Where is the oversight by the administration, any administration? There just isn't. And there are great, great folks over there at DPAP too. And it's almost like, you know, usually you think of the SBA as the one that takes a decade to get a rule out and a law that's passed. And it's no fault of, you know, you know, of the defense folks. It's just there is so much that they have to do that's in the queue. So, I, I think you make a great point. And this actually is a great segue, Roger, to we can talk government reorganization. Uh, that's going to impact as well the, the procurement world too. Uh, you know, For me, what stood out when I read the, the reorganization plan from the administration is obviously the, the major changes to GSA, OPM, lifting and, and moving so much of their, their HR solution shop. Uh, and some of the other things that would go to retirement services that would go to GSA. And, of course, GSA's name change. That right. was Gen- – General Services Agency. Government Services. Government Services Agency. Agency. Yeah, I was using the old name. That's how I used to – as a former employee. Just, just don't <laughs> call them the General Accounting Office. Uh, okay? uh, that's right. That. I won't, I'll try not to do that. So, To me, some of them is logical in the sense that those are very operational things that, you know, you know the payroll, HR, those kind of things that – support government operations. There's some logic to moving those to GSA. The government reorgan plan, you know, I always look at those things as, you know, the plan is great, but the Congress is what counts, right? And uh, Congress is structured too with its committee structure, subcommittees all around the oversight of the current structure. And when you talk about government reorganization, you're really talking also like how is Congress going to react to it? What does it mean for you know, my area, my oversight, it's very parochial. And um, that's why these things, they have a great splash at the beginning. But at the end of the day, it's typically around the margins in terms of real change. And it's interesting because Congress has put in the spending bills provisions that say you will use no money to reorganize without our approval. So they're out already coming down. And the other piece of this is just in late July, there was a hearing where the Senate Homeland Security Governmental Affairs Committee brought in GSA and OPM to talk about that merger and that change. So it's going to be interesting to see how his GAC continues to, okay, ask for answers and, and ask more questions and understand how that's all going to work. So the, that is all important pieces to see how this actually moves forward. But I know talking with people at GSA, I know talking with people at OPM that the progress, they're already starting to make progress. They're already sure. starting to have meetings. Mary Davies leading the GSA yes. side. We've found out just recently, Catherine McGettigan is leading the OPM side. There's other people underneath them. Mm-hmm. And even um, we, we've heard that um, Irv Kohler has come in from San Diego to be acting in, in Mary's role yes. as deputy commission, deputy commissioner of FAS while she works on this reorg. And that's how important it is to them that they brought somebody else in. They didn't just tell Mary to wear two hats. Right. And I think you're, that's a great point. I mean, that tells you how serious GSA is about it when they put someone of Mary's caliber in that position to sort of run the the reorg from GSA's perspective and then bringing Irv in to be the acting deputy commissioner in Mary's place 
you know, it's really they're sending missions. We're not going to skip a beat on what we're doing internally, but we're also going to, you know, make sure that what we can do with this reorg is a success. And, and I think the other thing to watch out for is not just the the who, but what comes from it. Uh, they're starting to be on meetings. Right. Government, as you well know, Roger, from 20 years in government, there's plenty of meetings that happen. Right, right. So uh, let's see what comes from it. Right. Um, and we've got to wrap up for this segment, uh, Jason. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion, move into some of the other interesting things like 846 or OTAs. My guest today is Jason Miller. He's the executive editor for Federal News Radio, and you are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today, my guest is Jason Miller. Jason is the executive editor for Federal News Radio, and we're talking procurement. We're taking a look. It's just about halfway through the calendar year and the last quarter of the fiscal year and just taking the pulse of procurement. I know. Can you believe it's the fourth quarter? Uh, no, I cannot. It's it, like, it really flies by. And what always amazes me is, and I heard the stat just recently, a third to half of all spending happens in the last three months. And this year's even worse because of the, the money really didn't get apportioned to... Right. agencies until you know end of march early april mid-aprils in some cases and and then i just heard this stat too recently sorry I'm, this is very exciting for me 80 billion dollars is what dod got above and beyond what they expected and civilian agencies got 63 billion above and beyond that's a fair piece of change yeah that's um addressable dollars for contractors um it's should be a robust uh, fourth quarter, right? What, the, what are you What are you hearing from your members so far? Are they Are they Are they ramping up for a big fourth quarter? Yeah, a lot of a lot of folks are very busy. It's a you know it, it's always a busy time of year, um, but I think right now they're quite optimistic and about the opportunities. Here's Here's the part where I turn reporter on you, so you'll forgive me, Roger. But mm-hmm. are you getting a sense of if because I know you guys do a ton of work with GSA schedules? Is GSA schedules again a very popular? Uh, a vehicle or are you seeing more full and opens? Are you seeing more other multiple word type contracts? Do you hear that from your members? Um, again, we haven't heard the trends so far this year. We can go back and we do track that. I, but, you know, I think GSA schedules will be up this year. The question is how much it's not, you know, we're not having, there isn't that explosive growth back about 20 years ago where it's, you know, 10% or more year on each year um and even more than that in some cases going from three billion to 30 billion and more uh over a decade course of a decade but i think you know the program's healthy you know it's stabilized it was going down a bit uh, a few years ago but also there's growth areas there are definitely growth areas in particularly oasis that's a huge growth area for gsa uh one of the most popular uh, programs right now and also in the assisted acquisition service, you know, and particularly FedSim, you know, they're basically, you know, full on. They've, they have work that will last them for any significant period of time, well beyond. And they've grown um, about 16% the last two years. They're up over $5.3 billion last year, and they should exceed that again this year. So there's increasing demand for assisted services, probably because people get more money so they can execute bigger programs. Um, so we're seeing lots of positive uh, in that area with GSA. The other thing that's surprising about when we talk about year-end spending is the HCATS program. That has just gotten off to a very slow start from what I've heard from vendors. And there's a kind of a feeling that is, is it going to be the multiple work contract that is not going to be successful. I mean, if you think about 
all the different contracts over the years that have done quite well, whether it's a line or Oasis or eight, a stars or vets Two or vets, the original, the, you, you saw a pretty quick ramp up. H guys has been a fairly slow ramp up. I'm not sure how much you guys are following that. Yeah. Uh, our members followed that. And, you know, we did have a working group that, you know, provided feedback on the RFP. And I think, you know, part of the, the challenge there is the um, sort of initial, you know, when it was ongoing throughout the uh, split sort of authority with GSA and OPM, you know, to the extent GSA manages it, it can manage the contract and that OPM takes sort of a backseat and doesn't, I think there's an opportunity for it to grow in that case. But it's one of those ones too that, you know, there are other channels too. There's things like schedules that include some a lot of that training and lots of agencies, in particular, I think DOD do their own training as well. But I think, you know, if GSA takes, you know, management of it and really runs it, it can be, you know, a viable contract vehicle. You know, the, the one that, that HCATS replaced was very popular. I think it did two to three billion a year in sales. I think this fourth quarter, this 2018, if you will, will be really a a time to, to tell whether HCATs can really survive or, you know, I'll put it out there, Roger, maybe you can't quite do this yet is maybe GSA needs to rethink it and say, maybe HCATs is, is the one that's well before it's time or, or came too late. One of the two, maybe people with the old contract got used to a certain specific way to buy and HCATs is different. And maybe they're going to buy that same way with the schedules. And especially now that you can add order level materials to the schedules, does that also create an ease of use around where HCATs is not needed anymore. I don't know. I'm, I'm, right. I'm, I'm just kind of talking off the top of my head here. Yeah. I think that's one of those things that, you know, it's easy to say time will tell it's, you know, we'll see to your point what the, I think the next year is going to be key for it. I prefer to say when the rubber meets the road, but that's just me. Yeah. Okay. Well you, you to each his own in terms of cliches. How about that? Huh? <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Okay. Um, so, you know, and I just lost my train of thought, but one of the things I did want to talk to you about is OTAs, other transactions Speaking of authority. things that are, the rubber is hitting the road or something. Right. So, you know, what are you seeing from your perspective? Two things that are happening. My colleague, Scott Massioni, just did a, a huge two-part series around OTAs. And if you haven't checked it out yet, I'm just going to do some self-marketing here and tell you it's a great read. It's a long read, but there's a ton of great information. And right now we know a couple of things are going on with OTAs. The first is DOD is using it in, in a big way. Uh, we just we got we gathered some statistics from DOD, and they tell us that 148 uh, OTAs, you can't call them contracts, uh, agreements were signed uh, sent between 2015 and 2017 to for about 21 billion dollars. Now the the whole goal of OTAs, other transaction agreements or other transaction authority, is to gain access more easily to, if you will, non-traditional federal contractors. And what Scott's research showed him was that that is not the case. In fact, when you break down the numbers, right, of the 148 OTAs, 66% went to those non-traditional contractors, which is good news. The bad news is the majority of the funding did not. Only $7.4 billion went to non-traditional, which means roughly $14 billion went to traditional contractors. And we're talking about the Lockheeds, the Raytheons, the Boeings, the Northrop Grumman's, so if DOD is trying to bring in new blood, get new ideas, to do something different, I would tell you, Roger, this is not the path. It's not a bad path. It's just not the path that I think people are giving a lot of credit to. Uh, are you starting to he hear some concerns in the community about OTAs, or is it too early? 
Um, I guess OTAs are a tool in the toolbox, and they appropriately so. But There's interrupt. another cliche for yeah, it. How about you. that? But I'm going to interrupt because don't you think that based on what you're seeing with DOD and now other agencies, I've heard from NIH, NASA's used OTAs for years, but in, in what I'll call the more traditional way they've used OTAs, they're starting, and now even GSA, I've talked to some folks at GSA, and they're going to start looking at, could they have do something around OTAs? I'm worried that it's not just a tool in the toolbox, but it's the shiny tool that everyone's starting to to you know, be a magnet toward. Well, yeah, okay. So, well, they just try to address some of those concerns that you raised. Okay. <laughs> Was that too many? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, on the traditional versus non-traditional contractors, you know, I get that you need to, you know, have get access and greater access to innovative technologies in the commercial market. And clearly the commercial market, um, you know, drives innovation it's not the federal government. We're not talking about the 1970s and 1980s where federal spend did make a significant difference in push technologies and capabilities, you know, where we have some of the things we have today as a result. It's the commercial marketplace, and the government is right to look for ways to get channels to find those technologies. At the same time, one of the things that concerns me about the conversation around it is this idea of, uh, you know, the old guard versus new guard, traditional versus non-traditional. You know, I think that if you're going to streamline things and focus on non-traditionals, you know, do it across the board. Like have a consistent set of rules for everybody. Don't look to favor one or the other. Create incentives for all parties, all capabilities to bring in uh, innovative technologies. And a lot of our members would tell you that, you know, they they've create a lot of innovation on behalf of the government of the years, or better yet, they have the combination of understanding the government and how it works and the capability to bring in commercial partners who have that cutting edge technology. So that's sort of the first thing. Let, let me jump in on that. When you talk about incentives, are you maybe talking about this idea of uh, an award fee, bring that back or something? I'm just kind talking of- about, you know, the concept of uh, use, you know, reducing the rules, reducing government unique requirements, which, you know, it's a good idea to the extent that makes sense to reduce those. The whole OTA concept is taking, uh, creating a channel outside the federal acquisition regulation. So the, the other thing in that regard, and perhaps one of the things that needs to be looked at is what is actually being bought. Is it really cutting edge prototype things? Are we buying different variations on commercial services that already exist? And, you know, to me, that's not the purpose of OTAs. As someone who worked with the FAR for a long time, uh, I hate to admit it, but I did, you know, as a lawyer, there's still a lot of flexibilities there that people don't take advantage of. And that's a question of leadership and using the system that already exists to take advantage of it. Um, you said leadership. Wait a yes, minute. Wait okay. a minute. Who, who's missing from the leadership? Oh, no, don't go wait back minute, to this. Wait a OP, minute. You, I can't think you, of you it. Have this, like, you have this obsession with OFPP. I don't have an obsession. Uh, no, no, I just no, no. think that like there's four or five agencies in government that don't ever get the credit that they deserve, and that happens to be one of the offices. Okay. Go ahead, Roger. All right. You know, and, and then there are some rules around the road. You know, DOD issued its handbook for OTAs, the recent protest that was- The green cloud. The green cloud yeah. protest, specific, GAO specifically took a look at those- particularly the definition of prototype and what the scope of what could be that DOD put in the handbook. And they basically 
you know, sided with the DOD that 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 was a appropriate. The protester challenged that. Put your sure. lawyer's hat on for me for a second. I'm not sure what your lawyer's hat looks like, but it's you, not. I mean, some would say it's a dunce hat. Is but, it a bowler cap? Yeah, or, yeah, okay. What do you think of that protest? Were you surprised that that Oracle was able to win that protest, or were no? And I, I mean, I guess when you read the decision, it's a well thought out decision. It's consistent with the law. It's not a question of it did not create new jurisdictional authority for GAO. That's, did you love that uh, column by um, Bill? Was it Bill Greenwald or was it? Yeah, Peter it was Levin? Bill Greenwald. And I understand Bill's concerns and I appreciate them about access to technology and the importance of that. You know, but what GAO did is applied the statute to the situation. And it's clear from the record that there was a couple of statutory requirements that the prototype was not complete. The record demonstrates that. And the OTA agreement didn't have within the scope of it the follow-on. And you need to have those things to be able to go to the follow-on. And, you know, the law was written for a reason. And, and even though it's not the FAR-based contract, there are, were requirements. And it's not unreasonable to apply those requirements to ensure, as Congress intended, you know, the effective use of that authority. That's, I think, all it was. And didn't create any new uh, capability um, but at the same time, you know, that access to technology and innovation, I appreciate um, uh, Bill's concern. Now, GSA tried something like this. They weren't called OTAs in the least bit. It was their Fastlane program. And do you think that the Fastlane program, while I think it was semi-successful to bring people on schedules quicker, sure. non-traditionals, maybe people who say that's too much too much paperwork, that that maybe was, was successful, but it was not the answer uh, to this Need. Yeah, I, I would say it's not the answer. It's because it's a bet one-off kind of thing. Yeah. It's focused on, a, you know, if you want to reduce burdens in particular, let's just use the schedules program and open it up to additional people, you know, you need to think about streamlining across the board. Like, do you, you don't need a price reduction clause. And, you know, over the years we've had members say, you know, my latest product, I won't put it on schedule because I can't track the sales sufficiently yet. To be able to ensure, you know, I don't run afoul of the clause, getting Civil False Claims Act stuff. So it does hamper, you know, time to market for, and that's the big, you know, time is money. Time is the key. The schedules are very streamlined ordering process, but the upfront process, making it more open, um, you know, GSA has in the past recommended, and I know it's one of the recommendations now, you know, the idea of not evaluating price for service contracts, or f- including the schedules, multiple war type. You know, that's a step towards acknowledging that, you know, the transactions are at the order level. Um, it reduces another hurdle to get on contract and, you know, and you vet them for quality and, and move on. But that price reduction clause makes a difference. It d- absolutely does. And you know what? Uh, on that note. On that note. So I beat a dead horse and brought something back. I haven't talked for a long time. Uh, but when we come back, we'll talk. We haven't talked about Section 846. We're going to do that. Maybe a little about category management, the interplay between the two of those. My guest today is Jason Miller. He's the executive editor for Federal News Radio. And you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Fed News Radio, 1500 AM. My guest today is Jason Miller. He's the executive editor for Fed News Radio. And, you know, as, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, Jason is the man when it comes to observing the, the entire federal marketplace. And uh, we've been having a wide-ranging conversation. And, Jason, in this segment, I want to talk a little bit about Section 846, the implementation. GSA is in the midst of implementation at a public meeting, oh, about a month ago, just about, Um They've just uh, accepted 
com- the RFI comments were due last week. What are you hearing? What are you saying? One of the things that stood out to me is Amazon is now making their big play about it. And I'll give you an example. Uh, Ann Rung, the former OFP administrator, the last OFP administrator to uh, hold that office from a Senate-confirmed position. You know, Roger, I don't know if you've known, it's been almost two years since we've had one. But uh, Yes, I think we've I'm talked sure about the hanging that. Yes, okay, two years and counting. And counting. <laughs> and anyway, so Ann, I haven't heard from Ann Rung, and all of a sudden I get this call from her press people. Hey, Ann will be in town. Let's do an interview. Oh, I wonder why Ann's in town. Oh, wait a minute, that meeting you mentioned is at the same time. Oh, it's the big Amazon week. So we, I got to sit down with Ann, and it was a very fascinating conversation. You can find it, again, marketing spiel number two, federalnewsradio.com. And one of the things she mentioned, which was very interesting, was she really made the case for why the electronic commerce buying approach is good. She didn't say Amazon's the only answer. I definitely give her credit for not just trying to tout Amazon the whole time. But this idea that there are, that for instance, Amazon is already doing several things with the government. The government is already using Amazon in a big way. I think there's a, a pilot going on with the Air Force. And I think that um, what she was saying was there are things that we can do to meet those requirements that the government has. Small Business, Trade Agreements Act, Barry Amendment, the, you know, all the other pieces and parts that there's a lot of concern about. And I think she really made her case for why that this e-commerce portal, again, not necessarily Amazon, but a number of them, could actually work well for the government. And and it really, for me at least, was a was a nice change from a lot of what we hear was a lot of concerns and a lot of this can't be done. What about this? What about that? And not getting a lot of feedback from GSA, not getting a lot of feedback from OMB, and, and even Congress just kind of turning a blind eye to all the challenges that are coming with this. Uh, I'm not sure if you got a chance to talk to Ann, if she met with your members or anything, but um, what, what's your? You probably saw some of the interviews. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess that w- that's that's an interesting. If you know their viewpoint has changed a little, and you know, at the public meeting back in January, the first public meeting. There was a spokesman from Amazon, and it did talk about the importance of prevailing commercial terms and conditions. Um, and so it's 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 interesting and good to hear that there there's some appreciation of of some of the other issues that go on. But you know, I, I just take, would take a step back and um, look at um, overall the Section Eight Forty Six implementation and just some of the things that um, are important to address. And you mentioned one of them, particularly Trade Agreements Act. That's there's significant questions with the idea of raising the micro purchase threshold to twenty five thousand. What does that mean for implementation of that? Uh, an application of it, you know, there are some uh, industry who are very concerned that you're creating a channel for products from countries who have not ag- uh, agreed to uh, you know the WTO GPA and treating, you know, American products on a par with, you know, other products, you know, n- not engaging in discriminatory practices against American products. Um, but this channel would not, you know, effectively sort of implement that by borrowing products from those countries being purchased. And, and you, you, one of the things you also have brought up to me, Roger, is this idea of supply chain and the risk that comes with that supply chain. And this comes at a time when the National Security Council is spending a lot of time on supply chain. There's a rumor of executive orders coming out from the White House around supply chain management. Congress is very busy with supply chain, whether we talk about Kaspersky Lab, cyber products, or Huawei and ZTE products. So all of a sudden, GSA is kind of over here with the e-commerce portal, and supply chains not even necessarily being brought up or not being talked about about access to products that potentially could be risky to the government. 
Um, yeah, I mean that's a that's a great observation that you know that, and I and I think you know to to GSA's credit, I think they're hearing these concerns, they're listening, they're trying to. They have a big task. It's a it's a challenging effort. They un, they have heard and they understand that things like supply chain risk, counterfeit, even that whether the Trade Agreements Act should or shouldn't apply, those are all kinds of things that GSA is currently wrestling with. You know, and then there, you know, and then there's the other aspects of it too that that are of, uh, e, I guess, policy interest, concern, questions, um, or focus. I think that's the best word, focus. And that is, you know, what's the organizational conflict of interest rule that is or isn't going to apply to this? So, to the extent you know, you have marketplaces, you know, and they and interestingly, GSA identified three different types of marketplaces out there, like the you know the software program e-procurement marketplace that goes out and leverages and like a Travago, you know, there's e-commerce platforms where that's what company selling its products on its website. And then there's the marketplace concept, like, um, where there's multiple sellers on the marketplace. And, um, I give GSA so, credit for putting out those, these RFIs, right. one for, I think suppliers and one for the, 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 the marketplace providers, um, it'll be interesting to see what they do with those responses to the RFI, if they're going to make them anonymous but public. Do you get any sense? I wasn't able to attend the meeting a couple weeks ago. I mean, I I, guess, I don't know what they're going to do. I would, say, I would assume they'd make them public. I mean, it's part of the public record. Um, well, yeah. We could always FOIA them. I always love that. Right. Well, they I tell think, journalists I, to FOIA stuff. Right. Well, I Thanks, think, guys. <laughs> yeah, well, why not? They, they're, they're committed to transparency. You know, they're, they're probably going to have another meeting in the fall. Um, they'll probably have... Further, they're doing all kinds of market research on this. They're asking, I think, the right questions. Um, but I go back to the organizational conflict of interest. You know, there there is a significant concern with the concept of marketplaces setting fees, setting the rules of the marketplace, controlling the data, and then competing against the suppliers who pay the fees, who do their transactions to the site. In a traditional government contract world. That is a government. That's a conflict, organizational conflict of interest. So, so let's put a finer point on this, so sure. I understand too. So uh, Jason Miller runs the portal, mm-hmm. the e-commerce portal. Yes. And Roger Waldron wants to sell his widgets. Exactly. So I say, okay, Roger, for you to do that, uh, it's going to cost you two cents on every sale. Right. But I could. But but then you're saying Jason Miller also has his own widgets that he's selling, and there's no two cents. So my price is automatically cheaper than Roger's because you're paying me two cents. Uh, is that the conflict of interest? Well, that that's. That, that's yeah i mean that's what we we that's been you know the feedback we've gotten just how all that works and how should it work are some of the things that um you know and you know stakeholders in this effort are talking about right now how, you know it is that it's it's not just it's the fees it's setting the rules of the road the agreement between the marketplace provider and the supplier like and who controls the date the transactional data um, you know, in the case of Section 846, that's the government's data, ultimately, right? It's the government's transactions. The government should control that. Um, and actually, frankly, in the statute also, it has a specific, uh, the Section 846 statute specifically prohibit, prohibits a marketplace provider from using that transactional data of third-party suppliers. Um, like the example you just gave, you know, that marketplace provider is pre- uh, precluded from using it for its own competitive purposes. So, and, and when we come back, let's tie this to, uh, 
category management too, because there's lots of questions out there around category management in Section 846 and category management generally, investing class contracting, all that good stuff. My guest today is Jason Miller. He's the executive editor for Federal News Radio, and you are listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today, my guest is Jason Miller, who is the executive editor for Federal News Radio. Nice, nice pause. You like that pause? That I was like dramatic pause. pause. Dramatic pause. I did that. And this is Roger Waldron here, your host of the show. So we never we never have dramatic pauses in procurement, except for when there's a big protest, right? Oh yeah, and then it's very dramatic, it's very right? Dramatic. It's like yeah. So, um, so we talked a little bit about eight forty six and where that may or may not be going, and um, it's kind of a great sort of uh, you know mirror or opposite to category management in the sense that category management is about leveraging requirements and you know getting better pricing based on those competitions at least and 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 understanding the data where the 846 particularly micro purchase threshold uh increase is about you know buying you know transaction after transaction and there really isn't the concept of leveraging at least not initially the way it's been uh explained so you know and category management, there's been restructuring across government, and particularly GSA, and then there's best-in-class contracts. And C- category management has very been a very interesting thing to watch over the last 18, 19, 20 months. Uh, the two things that stand out to me are I think there's two opposite directions happening. And I think on one hand, you have a r- r- some concerns from com- coming from Congress. In fact, in, in late July, there was a hearing looking or was a uh, looking at category management and, and a bill really looking at category management as a markup of the bill. And, and then on the second hand, uh, on the other opposite side, you were, were kind of waiting for Godot here, right? We're waiting for the, the circular to come out. We're waiting for policy to come out. And nothing's come out yet. And, and even GSA, who is really running the category management initiative with the category management leaders, they haven't yet made public their strategy. Now, I got a copy of it, of course, because that's what I do, Roger, you know that. And, and you're very good at it. I do my best. Yes. And um, the the strategy was very interesting and it talked a lot about the, the different goals and metrics. And it's going to be interesting to see what the 2018 strategy or update will look like in terms of did they meet their goals and metrics. So there's, I think there's two pushes and pulls going on. Right. Uh, yeah. And you, you point about, you know, the, the rule or the OMB circular and what was issued and there isn't, you know, any formal guidance right now. You know, I guess one of the ironies of that is that it's the, the implementation has continued on as if there is a circular in place for lack of, you know, at the same time there was a regulatory freeze so I guess if the freeze is in the eye of the beholder, I don't know. But that's just an in- interesting sidebar. The thing that I'm hearing most about is best-in-class contracting in particular. I love your line, by the way. If, if that's best-in-class, are the rest worst-in-class? Right. Or <laughs> is if, you or know— okay in class? Well, that's the other thing that's interesting about government, you know, government speak, right? Spend under management. And that's a certain category of spend. And it's all about reporting. And it's all about using certain best in class contracts. So does that mean if somebody has a really good contract, they're managing it well, they're getting the outcomes they want, but it's not best in class and it's not identified as, um, you know, as one of the ones that's blessed. That's not spend under management. It seems to me that agency sounds like it's doing a great job managing that contract. It's, it's, 
it's just it's it's all that we we can play semantics and terminology but i think it matters when you talk to federal employees and talk to contractors you know there's this i want to be a best in class right right i think nih has talked about with their some of their ciosc cs's and ciosb3s they want to be best in class we're waiting for that best in class designation oh, i've like, heard that from it, folks it's like yeah. a gold badge right yeah, absolutely not it's, a scarlet letter hopefully right and and you know, there's two two things about that 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 really are. You know, first of all, the government's picking winners and losers. I don't care what anybody says. Like this contract is blessed, this one is not, right? And they're also doing it without any direct input from the private sector or from the public, right? There's no what 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 criteria really makes sense for best in class. Is it about outcomes? Most of the criteria that are identified are about process. Like for example, you know. Uh, uh, you know, was there interagency group that developed collectively the acquisition strategy? That's one of the kind of things that they look to see. Is there data reporting on the contract or not? Um, and that's another thing they look at. They look at a lot of the process to determine rather than one of the things that they ought to be looking at, right, is the outcomes. Did the contract work? Is it effective? Does it support agency mission? Has it saved money or reduced, you know, costs? Those or delivered value, um, and you know that's where I think uh, industry could provide a lot of feedback on what are the characteristics of a contract that lend themselves to those good outcomes. You know, they're they're the ones who experience what the government does, and and can provide some feedback about what what the government ought to be considering if it's going to go down this best in class, uh, you know, path. You know, Roger, as we wind up here in 2018, it occurs to me, I wonder if Congress starts to get involved with category management, or what, what, what's, what, what do you think Congress is really paying attention to when it comes to contracting as we go into 2019? I, I think the NDA is always has great stuff in it. Well, just on category management, I know there's a lot of interest in the small business side of it, so you might see, and there have been hearings on it or meetings you know, over with regard to that. You know, the one, you know, if I was going to pick out one section that I think is has a big Im- could have a big impact on government contracting over the long term. It's Section 814 of the Senate uh, version of the NDAA. It would change the standard by which um, you make determinations when you, when you can do a single award IDIQ. In, in my mind, this the re- this quote reform or change to the to the criteria would essentially gut the preference for multiple award contracts. Has the potential for gutting them, and that has significant implications for the federal market. You, you're talking about potentially going back to something of the early 90s, late 80s, where you have a you, single award contracts become the norm again. And if there's a least competitive uh, approach, I can't think of one in terms of you know access to the market. One of the purposes of multiple board IDIQs was to maintain ongoing competition across the program to drive value and pricing and to continue access to greater capability through that competition. Um, this potential change, um, you know, I think has the risk of rolling back the clock on that. Seems to me like the word for 2019 may just be competition and whether it gets rolled back. Roger, this yeah, was well, great. Thank hey, you. Well, Jason, thank you for coming on the show today. Um, you know, maybe we will do it again before maybe. the end. I don't know. It, it, it seemed to go pretty well again. I mean, well, you make it easy. You, you, you know, I just got to get you turned up on something and oh, just mention OLMs and we're good. Right, right. Well, I want to thank my guest today. Jason Miller, he's the executive editor for Federal News Radio, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM.
You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. Off the Shelf, only on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com.